Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and gray Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills Sketch the trees and the daffodils Catch the breeze and the winter chills In colors on the snowy linen land So, Father, thank you for, uh, well, thank you for Vince um, and Allison, the band. And thank you for Vincent. And I pray that you would help us through the power of your spirit to listen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Picking up where we left off two weeks ago, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Seems like a weird thing to say. In Jesus' day, uh, Salt usually came with a bunch of other minerals in it because they dig it up down at the Dead Sea or whatever. So, so when the sodium chloride would leach out, you would be left with nothing but like gypsum and other, other minerals. You'd be left with nothing but adamah in the Hebrew. <laughs> That's Hebrew for, for dirt or dust. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, the feet of men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before, before people, before men, before humanity, anthropone in, in the Greek, so that they may see your good works, kala erga, beautiful deeds. Not simply good, kalos, but beautiful. That they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. You know, he calls, he calls God their Father. That's, that's amazing. We'll be talking about that a lot more as we work through the sermon. He, uh, gl- give glory to God your Father who is in heaven. Let your, light, let your light shine that the world can see your beautiful deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. <laughs> what deeds? What deeds do you suppose uh, Jesus is is talking about. I mean, why do people of the world just spontaneously start thanking God for the, the work of the moral majority and the Christian coalition and the modern evangelical voting bloc? Why do they do that? Or do they do that? I mean, what good works is Jesus talking about? And how do we become salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light 
of, of the world. I've been a professional pastor in some sort for like of some variety now for about 40 years. I graduated from the world's largest evangelical seminary that uh, really specialized in the study of church growth. For a time, for a time, I was considered an expert at church growth. I would go to other, other churches would ask me to come and talk to them about church growth. Back in the day, back in that day, salt and light and church growth meant marketing, management, and one other word that starts with M that I'll talk about in a moment. Marketing is all about doing what you do to be seen by anthropone, seen by men, seen by humanity. Someone once said, you know, you are the only Bible that some people will ever, ever read. If you're saved, inform your face. In my high school, where Alan and I went to high school, we had a spirit section at football games where we'd sit and we'd chant, heritage, 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 high spirit. Marketing is why we choose names for ourselves like Heritage Eagles or Moral Majority or Promise Keepers or Focus on the Family or Happy Church or Joyland, etc., 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 but never something like Sinners Anonymous. Wouldn't choose that for a name. 20 years ago, I was heading up a building campaign, and the consultants we hired said that we needed a slogan. So it was me. I came up with it. Where the world drives by. I still like that slogan. It means where the world drives by on I-70 and sees a monument to Jesus. And kind of sort of maybe just a, a little bit, a, a monument to, to Peter who works really hard at glorifying Jesus. Marketing, marketing and, and management. We had a staff of something like 35 full-time people, and the consultants informed me that we needed more management, better management. So we organized committees, held events, and I tried to inspire people without lying. I mean, and the truth was that we really needed a building. We had four services, and we're turning people away, and it worked. We built, we acquired a 12.8 million dollar facility, and we still had our old one across the highway on Lookout Mountain. Marketing can be very good. And management can be a spiritual gift, the gift of administration or even pastoring. But marketing and management can also be manipulation. That's the, that's the third M. So when I hear salt and light, I think marketing, management, and manipulation, and I get like this sick feeling in the pit of my stomach because we do it all in the name of Jesus. We live in a market-driven consumer society in which we constantly lie and hear lies called advertisements. We are constantly managed by powerful corporations and government institutions with an elaborate network of uh, threats and promises. We constantly manipulate and are manipulated. It's, well, that's how we get things done. That's, that's how it works. Don't you know that? So when the institutional church thinks that we are to get things done, when, when we hear salt of the earth, light of the world, we naturally think marking management and, and manipulation. And so we end up saying stuff like this. God loves you. God loves you absolutely and unconditionally. 
Unless, of course, you don't have faith that God loves you absolutely and unconditionally, uh, for then he actually <laughs> abhors, abhors you and hates you absolutely and unconditionally, and you'll know if you have faith by whether or not you join this church. Trust me, I'm ordained, I'm a professional, I get paid. Of course, we find very sophisticated ways to say that so that it's not so obviously that, but it is that, marketing, management, manipulation, but Jesus did not say market, manage, and manipulate. You know, he didn't even say be salty. He said you are salt. He didn't even say shine the light. He said you are the light. Let it shine. You know, I can't think of any place, and I looked, I worked, got a computer, you know, I, I can't think of any place in Scripture where Jesus or God said, go witness. The Greek word is uh, martyrus, or martyrus, it's, it's where we get the word martyr. We're told to go preach, some people, are, some people are told to preach, that means to announce, but Jesus never says, go witness. He says, you will be my witnesses. Marturas. Not be salt, be light, but you are salt. You are light. You are the thing, you're the thing that makes everything taste better. Like salt. You know, some people bring out the flavor in everyone around them. So the bread's better, the steak is better, every situation is better, and every person is, is better. You are the salt. You are the light. When, when some people enter a situation, a group or a crowd, their entrance is like a lamp suddenly uh, turned on in, in a dark room through which you've been stumbling. You know how that is? And I was like, oh, every, everything takes on, takes on meaning because of the light. You're the salt and the light that brings beauty and meaning to the world. You are like this, this masterpiece. This is one of the most recognized paintings in the world, Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. I recently read that it's valued at well over $100 million. Hung on the wall in a boring room and the room will, the room will taste better. The light from this picture might even change a heart or, or two. Jesus says, you are the salt. You are the light. You, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So who's he talking to? Who's you? Well, I find this rather fascinating, but it's not the general assembly of the United Presbyterian Church. It's not the 1983 graduating class of Fuller Theological Seminary. It's those people we began talking about two weeks ago in Matthew chapter five, and none of them had been to seminary. Uh, none of them had stepped foot, even stepped foot in what we would call a church or read the four spiritual laws or ever said, quote unquote, the sinner's prayer. They didn't know what it was. They were Jews and Gentiles that had left this crowd and followed Jesus up this little mountain in order to hear him, him talk. And, and this is what Jesus says these people are like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Of them is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Of them is the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus switches to the second person plural pronoun. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, for my sake, for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be glad. Be glad because your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In Greek, you is in the emphatic position. You, poor in spirit. Not sitting in the spirit section advertising your spirit. You who mourn, not manipulating with sorrow, but feeling the sorrow of this fallen world. You meek, not demanding your rights and yet inheriting the earth. You hungry and thirsty for righteousness, not you who market your righteousness. A few years ago, Donald Miller and his friends, they set up a confessional booth on their college campus, but they didn't take confessions. They gave confession. They, they confessed to unbelievers. They set up a confessional booth where they would confess to unbelievers who would line up in order to hear them. They confessed how Jesus was all about love and yet they had neglected to love. They had rejected the poor. They had even been proud of being part of a group responsible for things like apartheid and the Crusades. Started something like a little revival at Reed University. Blessed are those who name their church sinners anonymous or maybe even Alcoholics Anonymous. You're the salt. You're the light. You merciful, says Jesus. You merciful, not demanding justice as if it were the opposite of mercy, but demanding the justice that is mercy. You're the salt. You're the light. You pure in heart. The, the pure in heart don't manipulate and they cannot be manipulated. Why? Because they desire one thing, to see God who is love and whose word is truth. They seek God and their reward is God. You peacemakers, not peace havers, that's different, peacemakers. You that are reviled by the crowd for me, for righteousness, says Jesus. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the cosmos. Why them? Well, they don't market their righteousness, do they? They don't manage everyone around them as if salt and light were some sort of act, do they? When I was a young pastor with several years ago, when my little church was growing like gangbusters and I was making a name for myself, a local Christian TV station asked me to come in for a, an interview. I remember sitting on the set, you know, couch with a picture of a boat or something, and this guy was interviewing, bubbly, just bubbly young interviewer, interviewing 
interviewing me, I remember he just, he blurted out, brother, brother, your church is so wonderful. <laughs> Hallelujah. Tell me, what do you think when you see a vibrant, what's the first thing that pops into your head when you see a vibrant, vibrant young couple walk through your church's doors? And all of a sudden, I, I knew. I remembered exactly what had popped into my head the last time I saw a vibrant young couple walk through the church doors. I remembered exactly, this is what I thought, this is what popped into my head. I remember thinking, wow, she's hot. <laughs> it was just so clear to me, but, but I didn't say that. I kind of swallowed and smiled and I think I said, Oh, I think to myself, God loves them. <laughs> Which was also true, but, I, but I, didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't speak the truth. Why? Because it would have been too salty. We see the people that Jesus was talking to, they didn't have much ability to market themselves, manage their environment, or manipulate the people around them. For some reason, we think that in order to be most potent, we, we must market, manage, and manipulate. But Jesus seems to think that it's like just the opposite. So a young pastor working at Bel Air Presbyterian Church in California, even before the TV show, I, one of the students in our program, I remember he, he took me aside at some event and he said, Peter, you... you you changed my life. His name was Billy. Uh, I considered him to be like the poster child of Peter Hyatt Ministries because Billy was passionate. He was a, a deep thinker. In, in many ways, he was my best friend in, in L.A. And, and he had come to our church as, as a seeker. He said, Peter, you changed my life, and I want to tell you how it happened. I figured it was a brilliant talk. It was an enlivening program. It was some deep and profound new inside of mine. He, he said, Peter, I, I was pounding a nail. It was on one of our trips down to, to Mexico. I was pounding, I was pounding a, a nail in a house that we were building, and well, the nail went in crooked, and I couldn't get it straight, and I tried to, I tried to hide it from you, but you saw and you came over to where I was, and I fully expected you to, ber to berate me in front of my friends and maybe even hit me like my, like my father would, but, but you just laughed. You, you made a joke out of it, and then you like showed me how to hold the hammer, and we pounded in, in the nail. And then he said something like this. Peter, that was when I began to believe. I remember thinking, I'm sorry, but I don't think I even remember that. I didn't say this, but I thought it. I, you know, I had all kinds of selfish reasons to be nice to you, but, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, a little light shone through the cracks in this, this shattered, insecure vessel on that hot and exhausting day down in Mexico. And if I'm honest, that's why I believe, too. I've studied apologetics, science, philosophy, and theology. I've seen amazing healings and miracles that just cannot be denied, but that's probably not why I believe. 
in high school, I actually told God one night that I didn't believe in him anymore, and it wasn't until later that I realized I was talking to the one I said I didn't believe in. Why? Because I believed. I believed because I had encountered him. I believed in God because I encountered him in my dad, the pastor. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't his sermons. I mean, I thought they were boring. They often put me to, to sleep. It wasn't even so much as teaching and instruction, although it was really brilliant at times. I encountered him in my dad's eyes, his voice, his touch, his life, when dad looked at me in the hospital bed as a child and he said, I remember looking at him as he looked at me and he said, oh Peter, if there was any way, I would take this pain for you. When I would bump into him at three in the morning and say, dad, what are you doing? And he'd say, well, I'm, I'm up praying. When it was clear that he could no longer market himself, manage his world, and manipulate those around him, when I watched him get crucified by his church and, and his world, when he couldn't manipulate, but, but he also would not be manipulated, when he continued to speak truth and bleed mercy no matter the cost, particularly the cost to his ego, in my dad, I encountered love. And God is love. God is love and his word is the light of the world. To market love is called prostitution. To manage love is to turn the life into a law. To manipulate love is to nail the life of love to a tree in a garden. But even so, love will not be manipulated. Love will rise from the dead and romance you, not manipulate you. Love will manipulate all things, but not you. Love will romance you into his own image. Love is not an act that you can perform. Love is not a program that you can follow. Love will not be bought with threats or, or Promises. Love is a commandment, but not a commandment that you can fulfill. Real love is God. And his word is truth, and both are the light. You can't make the light, but you must let it shine. And now just look at this, Matthew 5. Did you, did you catch what Jesus said, started that second paragraph there? You are the light of the world. That's like saying you are me. Or the real you, the true you is me. He's the light of the world. You, you can't make yourself Jesus. You cannot make yourself Jesus. But what if Jesus were to make you himself? You can't make yourself salty and you can't make yourself the light, but, but maybe you can pour the salt out of the shaker and maybe you can pour yourself out. Maybe you can pour your spirit out. Maybe you can make yourself, you can't make yourself shine, but, but maybe you can let yourself, your true self, shine. What does all that mean? Well, I think he's saying don't, don't stay at home. For God's sake, don't stay in the church, but go to the office party. <laughs> That's like shaking salt out of the salt shaker. But don't try to be salty, for in this way, you will lose your saltiness. The, the false you, the one that you market, manage, and manipulate is not 
the real you. Don't try to be salty. Just be you. The real you. You are the salt. You, the vulnerable, authentic, individual, and honest you, are the life of the party. But the false you is the earthen vessel in which it is hidden. How can its saltiness be restored? Well, only the Creator can make salt. You are the light of the world. But Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. You see, he's talking as if these folks are actually his body. To them, he said, you are the light of the world. So, so I don't know that you can make yourself shine, but it appears that you can let yourself shine. So check this out. If the real you is the thing that shines, what is the you that must let it shine and often does not let it shine? What's the basket? In Greek, the word is modios. It's, it's also translated bushel because it's a unit of measure. Scripture teaches that we each have a false self which we have constructed whenever and wherever we have measured ourselves and tried to redeem ourselves. Whenever and wherever we have taken fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and tried to make ourselves in the image of God. Whenever and wherever we've tried to justify ourselves according to the law in the power of the flesh. Whenever and wherever we've tried to market, manage, and manipulate ourselves in order to glorify ourselves in the sight of the anthropos. The men, the crowd, the people. So listen closely. The, the modios, the basket with which you cover the light of the world, is your ego, your flesh. To use St. Paul's vocabulary, your vessel of clay, your earthen vessel, it, it, it doesn't make you potent, but utterly impotent. Not important, that's the lie but impotent. So Jesus speaks his eight Beatitudes, but on the eighth he rephrases the Beatitude and speaks it in the second person plural pronoun saying, blessed are you when they, who's they? Well, they is the crowd, right? They is the anthropos, they, they is humanity. Blessed are you when they persecute you for my sake. You are the light of the world. You know, Paul wrote, we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God. It's when the crowd assaults your earthen vessel, even breaks that vessel, that the transcendent glory shines through the cracks and brings light to the world. Our old marketing slogan, the one that I invented, was where the world drives by. <clears throat> I think that God has been laughing at me for years. And I'm, I'm beginning, I'm just beginning to laugh with him. Where the world drives by and is reminded of Peter Hyatt's failure. I mean, I honestly really find that kind of hilarious. I mean, it was not, and by that I mean it, what happened was not at all what I intended, what I had defined as success. Where the world drives by and is reminded of Peter Hyatt's failure, 
and haunted by a question. Maybe there is such a thing as truth. And for truth, someone was willing to suffer. But now listen very closely, because I need to be really clear about this. I've, I've wanted to turn the sanctuary, I've wanted to turn this into my new basket. My new ego booster. Just by using this as an illustration, I'm in danger of doing just that. And yet, I'm doing just that because it wasn't just me. <laughs> it was also you. And it still is you, even if you never set foot in our $12.8 million facility. I, I know that for many of you, just attending the sanctuary is damaging to your reputation, your ego. On the left, people think that we are intolerant Bible thumpers. On the right, people think we're liberal heretics because we confess that through Christ God reconciles all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. We print it right on the front of the bulletin. I know that many of you suffer for that confession, but when you suffer and still confess, a light shines. And you're the light. You don't even need to defend the light, explain the light, or speak of the light. You see, love is the light. And it's your faith in love that allows it to shine, even when, especially when, particularly when your ego is cracked and, and, and damaged in the process. For then, the, that, that, that crack in the earthen vessel, it reveals a, a king sitting on the throne in the sanctuary of, of your soul. You, you understand? I may be able to explain the theology, but you are the theology. Your love in flesh, the body of Christ. And when it becomes clear that you are not marketing yourself, managing your world, and manipulating the people around you, when your ego is shattered, but you continue to love in truth and speak the truth in love, then you are more beautiful than you can even comprehend. Of you consists the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that is at hand. A few months ago, reading one of my wife's art books in the bathroom on my throne, I was kind of surprised to read that in his lifetime, Vincent van Gogh only sold one painting. Painted, 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 sold one painting. It wasn't this painting, by the way, just one painting. He sold it to a fellow painter that appears to have taken pity on Vincent. Now that should tell you something about the opinion of the crowd. Only one painting. Van Gogh lived what many would call a very tragic life. So this week I did some research and discovered that he was the son and grandson of Dutch Reformed pastors who, who Vincent also wanted to be a pastor, but he flunked the entrance exam to seminary, and yet he did serve as a missionary. He was a missionary, a local pastor of, of, of a little church that loved his people and loved his Lord. His people were coal miners in a working district in Belgium. He gave away most everything that he most of his clothing. 
He, he slept on straw in a hut because he gave his lodging in a bakery to a, to a homeless man. And so he didn't look all that great or dress all that great, and he slept on straw in a hut. And when the church authorities discovered this, they dismissed Vincent for, quote-unquote, undermining the dignity of the priesthood. He appears to have suffered a nervous breakdown at this point in his life. It was his brother Theo, a name which means God, by the way. It was Theo that persuaded Vincent to pursue his artwork. And it was Vincent who hoped that in doing so, he could see God. To understand the real significance of what the great artists tell us in their masterpieces, said Vincent, that leads to God. One man wrote or told it, in a book, another in a picture. And so Vincent painted pictures. He painted lots of biblical themes. Ironically, they're kept in the basement of the museum where most people go see his, his work, but he painted them. And according to William Havlicek, one of Vincent's biographers, this particular painting, The Starry Night, painted in 1889 in the asylum in St. Remy, France, this particular painting is Vincent's interpretation of a scene in Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables, or Miserables, however you say that. It's a scene in which this saintly bishop reflects on the kingdom of God at hand in the night sky as Victor Hugo narrates, writing this, he offered up his heart, lighted like a lamp in the center of the starry night. Well, as I mentioned, Vincent encountered great tragedy in his life. He was spurned by a woman that he dearly loved. He took pity at one point on a poor prostitute and her children, although his motives and their living arrangement was and is questioned to this day. He struggled with substance abuse, mental illness, and like you and me, he struggled with sin. In the end, he took his own life by planting a bullet in his chest. However, some argue that he didn't take his own life, but gave his own life. For the evidence indicates they didn't actually fire the gun because they couldn't find the burn marks. But he took the game, blame for firing the, the gun just before he died, which took a couple days. He, he took the blame, this is what some think, in order to protect these two boys who had been shooting nearby and harassing Vincent for sport. I don't know. But whatever the case, Vincent saw beauty. And God is beauty. Vincent saw beauty, and regardless of the opinion of the crowd, Vincent reflected that beauty back through the shattered pieces of his broken vessel. He painted and painted and painted, even though he only sold one painting his entire life. And so it wasn't marketing, management, and manipulation. It was worship. Of such consists and is constructed the kingdom of God. Recently, Angie, downstairs, Angie Dancer, she showed me this old video from the British TV series, Doctor Who. They travel back in time. They pick up Vincent van Gogh just a few weeks before his tragic death, and they take him to the Museo, the Museum d'Orsay in Paris in 2010. Where are we? Paris, 2010 AD, and this is the mighty Musée d'Orsay, home to many of the greatest paintings in history. Oh, that's wonderful. 
Uh, ignore that. I've got something more important to show you. Take all your chances while you can. Never know when they'll pass you by. Like a sum, the mathematician cannot solve. Like me, trying my hardest to explain. You were nice about my tie. Yes, and today is another cracker, if I may say so. But I just wondered, between you and me, in a uh, hundred words, where do you think Van Gogh rates in the history of art? Well, um, big question, uh, but to me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of the world. Certainly the most popular great painter of all time. The most beloved. His command of color, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. To my mind, that strange wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist but also one of the greatest men who ever lived. Vincent, sorry. I'm sorry, is it too much? No, they are tears of joy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Sorry about the beard. <laughs> you see, you will have a day like that. You will have an eternity like that. Because you and only you are the absolute best at being you. See, I can say this with confidence because I know who our dad is. You'll have a day like that or an eternity like that and, and you'll look around and you'll say, I don't even remember giving a cup of cold water to a child. In your name? I did that in your name. I don't remember bumping into my son at three in the morning. I don't even remember, I don't remember the nail. 
I don't know if Vincent van Gogh took his own life with a bullet to his chest. But I know that my friend Billy took his own life with a bullet to the chest. It was perhaps the hardest news that I've ever received. Billy struggled with mental illness. I think probably some substance abuse, lies from his childhood. And one day in a garden at UCLA, he sat down, pulled a handgun out of a paper bag, and shot himself in the heart. Suicide will not get you into heaven. I need you to hear me when I say this. Suicide will not get you into heaven because it's not surrendering control. It's seizing control. Suicide will not get you into heaven, but Jesus will. I don't know how long it may take, how painful the process may be, but I'm sure that Jesus followed Billy. And I trust that when Billy sees Jesus, he'll recognize Jesus. Because he was the light in my father's eyes. And if there was light in my eyes, it was him. It was Jesus. The Gospel of John makes it abundantly clear that the judgment is the light, the, the light that has come into the world. Jesus is the light. And to love him and to go to him is salvation. He shines in your eyes. He speaks with your mouth. He touches the loss with your fingers. You are his body, his witnesses. He lives your life as you surrender your ego and let him shine. In heaven, you are surrounded with masterpieces created through you, and the greatest masterpiece is you. We have this, uh, we are his masterpiece, writes Paul. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You make great art, and you are uh, revealed as great art when you lose your ego and find yourself worshiping the Lord. Your eyes reflect his light. Beautiful deeds are the fruit of living a vulnerable, authentic, and surrendered life in the brilliant gaze of the one who loves you. Your eyes reflect the light. Let your light so shine before the anthropos that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heavens. What good deeds is, is Jesus talking about? You know, Matthew only uses this term, kalos ergon, one other place in his gospel, beautiful deed. Do you remember where it is? It's just before Judas betrays Jesus at a banquet in the house of Simon the leper. A woman, most likely a prostitute, loses, she loses all sense of propriety and she breaks this alabaster flask of like priceless perfume that she probably used in her profession. She breaks it and she pours it over Jesus' head as he reclines at supper. Judas and the disciples, they become indignant. Uh, they say, why, why the waste? This could have been sold and given to the deacon program. Why the waste? And Jesus says, she has done a kalos ergon, the beautiful deed. 
She has prepared me, anointed me for my burial, and wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She didn't market herself, manage her world, or manipulate the people around her. She simply ignored the crowd, surrendered to the light of love, shining in the eyes of Jesus. She is the light of the world, and she is the salt of this earth. You know, all the offerings presented in the temple were to be seasoned with salt. And in the end, the entire world is to be an, author, an, an offering, the entire earth, consumed by fire, purified with fire, and filled with the fire that is our, our God who is love. The faith, hope, and love that shine through the cracks of your shattered ego are the life of God, the light of the world and the salt of this earth. Listen closely. Matthew 26, 12. The harlot bride of the eschatos Adam. Who's that? <laughs> the harlot bride of the eschatos Adam does the kalos ergon as she anoints him, our Lord Jesus, with perfumed oil. In 14 more verses, as he sits at table with his 12 disciples, he takes bread and he breaks it. Saying, take and eat. This is my body. And he takes the cup. He says, drink of it, all of you, in the Gospel of Matthew. Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In the morning... We nail them to the tree in the garden. How's this for poor in spirit? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How's this for mourning? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How's this for meekness? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Think God answered that prayer? How's this for thirsty? I thirst for what? Your righteousness. How's this for, for mercy? How's this for pure in heart? Not my will, but thy will. How's this for peacemaker? The one we call the Son of God. How's this for persecuted by the crowd? for righteousness sake. How's this for salt of the earth and light of the world? This is maximum potency. (laughs) This is the faithful witness. This is love. And so come to the table ingest some salt and light and then stop worrying about yourself and just let him shine amen so this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine, 
I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And how are you gonna do that? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're gonna have to forget yourself, right? You're gonna have to forget yourself. And how can you forget yourself? I mean, with this crowd of people all around you giving you their opinion all the time, how are you gonna forget yourself? Well, I think, what Jesus is saying, because he uses this word now for the first time, and we didn't have time to talk about this, but it, we'll talk about it a lot more. He says to this group of people just sitting on the hillside, he says, your father. He calls God their father, their individual father. I think we forget ourselves by looking at the face of our father. And who's the face of our father? He's the light, that's what First John says. Well, who's the light of the world? Who, who, whose face can we look at and see the face of our father? Well, that's the face of Jesus, right? So how do we forget ourselves? We look at, at the light shining in the face of, of Jesus. We listen to the word spoken from the father to us. We listen to the word of love, the word of grace upon our lives, and then we forget ourselves and we just start drawing pictures. Um, you know, in my, in my office, I have a bunch of pictures on the wall, and some of them are like by people in the church. Most of them are by my kids. Um, one I have of, of that Coleman drew, and then one with Elizabeth and me at the pyramids. I don't know why we're at the pyramids. And uh, one is just scribbles that Elizabeth made for me when she was like three, because she wanted to help me write a sermon. She knew I was struggling with it, and I, I keep it in, in in my drawer, because you see that art galleries, that's not just wishful thinking. Your father has an art gallery, and it's called reality. This isn't reality. Reality is at hand, and you taste reality when you stare in your father's face and you just draw him a picture or you sing a song, or you do your job, or you smile at someone at the grocery store. Of such consists the kingdom of God. And soon you will see it. You, you will see it with new eyes, but now you can see it with the eyes of faith. In other words, by way of benediction, I'm just saying what? Believe the gospel. That's <laughs> good news. And... Uh, if you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team are down front here. I'd love to pray with either of these people, so you ought to take advantage of it if you want. If not, we invite you to go downstairs. Um, there are probably extra refreshments today because of the snow, so it would be bad stewardship if you didn't eat them. So anyway, before I preach a sermon on stewardship, just go downstairs, eat donuts, and talk to each other, all right? Have a great week. See you next week.